The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, oh, how much fun was this? I, I can't begin to tell you what it's like to sit in a room with the Jeremy's, Professor Jeremy Siegel. And I keep calling him Professor Jeremy Schwartz, but he's just Jeremy Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer of the $75 billion ETF and mutual fund company Wisdom Tree. I am just a fan of both of these guys. I have interviewed Professor Siegel several times. He's always fascinating. You'll hear um, him sort of zip in and out of focus like this because he's sitting on the chair, spinning around, just having fun telling stories. So if you hear his audio cut in and out, he's he's all but spinning in circles. He's just charming, as is Jeremy Schwartz is one of the smartest people you'll meet in finance, just a thoughtful, intelligent person who really understands what value is about, how to find investments that will outperform the broader markets with less risk, less volatility. He's been a big advocate, along with Professor Siegel, of fundamental indexing, where you're focusing on things like earnings and dividend and value. And uh, they have some fascinating things to say. Latest version of Stocks for the Long Run has just come out. It's, it's sold ungodly numbers of copies and is on everybody's best finance books of all time list. I found this conversation to be so much fun. We could have gone for another couple hours, but I had to stop and send them off to the New York Stock Exchange uh, to do whatever they're going to do there. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I know I did. With no further ado... My sit-down with the Jeremys, Professor Jeremy Siegel and Jeremy Schwartz. Professor Siegel, you began at Wharton back in 76. Did you ever imagine a half a century later you're still teaching in the same place? That's Well, it. I'm still associated. I'm emeritus professor, mm -hmm. Barry. I actually left active professor uh, in July of 2021 after 45 wow. uh, years. Wow. Of teaching at Wharton. I had taught four years University of Chicago before that, so 49 years of university teaching. I've been as busy as, <laughs> because finishing, as we're going to talk about, sixth edition of the book and, and conferences more than ever, because now you can do them on Zoom. So I can do San Diego at uh, 9 a.m. and at 10.30 I can do New York, which of course never used to be possible. Huh. Modern technology. And Schwartz, you went to Wharton. You had Professor Siegel as an instructor. Tell us what that experience was like. How was he as a professor? So I got to Wharton in 99, which mm -hmm. was the peak of the tech bubble. I was coming into my own, seeing the tech bubble, living through it, having some experience investing in some of those tech stocks and watching them crash. And he was on, I, I got to meet him through who's now the Philly Fed president, Patrick Harker. I was on the thing uh -huh. called the Dean's Advisory Board. We organized sessions with the professor, and I got to meet him through that. And then he got me into his class. I didn't even know he had to apply to his class, but he got me into his class. And the summer, What, do you think you just walk in off the street and you say, have to apply. Professor, you have to apply. professor Siegel, I'm here? It doesn't work I like that. I didn't know that. 
Um, <laughs> but I was lucky to meet him. And then, so oh one was when I was sitting in his class. So this is after you know March of two thousand. His famous op-ed, "Big Cap Tech Socks Are a Sucker's Bet." I remember that vividly. So he's on yeah. CNBC all the time talking about this, and I needed something to do for the summer. And uh, that was the third edition. Um, back in '02, we helped. That was my first project with him. Was the third edition of Stocks for Long Run. Really? So yeah. you have a 20-year relationship with Stocks for the Long Run, as well as with Professor Siegel. It's been great. So the question for you is: You come out of Wharton. How do you end up at Wisdom Tree? Well, Wisdom Tree. Now I've been there 17 years. The professor. We knew the founder, Jonathan Steinberg. Sure. Uh, he had a magazine. The professor was publishing for the magazine, and, and the Steinberg family very involved in Wharton. So we were looking at their indexes. The second book, The Future for Investors, which we did, came out in 05, had a lot of work on dividend investing, value investing, and we helped validate their initial research, which got the company funded in 04. The professor invested and joined as an advisor, and they saw I did all his research, and I'm now the second longest employee and have been there from the very wow. early days. Just you're right behind Jonah, who remains elusive and is a phantom figure who I can't get to the studio, <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. So so uh, Wisdom Tree goes public, the two of you are affiliated with it, but I recall vividly Professor Siegel as a traditional market cap weighted yeah. index sort of guy. How did you find uh, dividend weighting or value weighting or other ways of looking at what some people terribly call smart beta? Yeah. But how did you find your way to those sort of indexing, which is what Wisdom Tree has become known for? And as Jeremy mentioned, the tech bubble itself was quite instrumental in uh, saying, just a minute, it's cap weighting uh, the very best. And uh, what uh, John Steinberg had called me up and said, you know, we were thinking of fundamentally weighting instead of by uh, just market cap, which is the assumption of efficient market hypothesis right. uh, by either earnings or dividends. Would you do historical research on stocks to see whether it gives you a better risk return trade off? And that's where Jeremy came in because he was my right-hand man, to say the least, mm -hmm. in doing all this. We did it not only for the U.S., we did it internationally. We wrote a white paper that was associated with it. And when we did it, I said, you know what? It is significantly better risk-return trade-offs. It makes sense for me. I was formulating a theory called the noisy market hypothesis instead of the efficient market hypothesis, uh -huh. where this sort of fundamental indexing would do better and Jono asked me, and I said, you know, I've, I've spoken for dozens of companies. I've never really taken any official position, but I said I would be uh, willing to uh, certainly consider being an advisor on Wisdom Tree. And I am a senior investment strategy advisor to Wisdom Tree since that beginning. So let's not bury the lead. If market cap isn't the most efficient way to organize an index, what is? What is? Well, fundamentals. More specifically. More, well, we like dividends and or earnings uh -huh. as uh, the weighting procedure. So value with a dividend yeah, so kicker, it, so it, Yes. And what it does give you is a, is a value tilt. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. And I remember telling Jono, um, I'll go with you on this, but we have to be inexpensive 
I don't want us to charge 100 basis points. Right. And he said, I want as many people to use it, and I want it to be inexpensive. We came out with the lowest cost. Uh, now it became more competitive since then, but when we came out, we were really lowest, definitely lowest cost of all, the, I think, the fundamental weighted indexes and you guys prefer the name fundamental as opposed to smart beta i think kind of smart beta has fallen out of semantics and branding we actually use the term modern alpha now modern alpha okay so it's you know more in line with what you're trying to achieve you're not just trying to be beta you're you say you're being i like dumb beta beta, but that's just me that's my (laughs) preference i don't it's so weird how these names sort of catch fire for a while and they go viral We'll talk a little bit about your recent viral uh, TV appearance in a bit, (laughs) but before I get to that, I I have to ask, so how do you two guys meet? You're an undergraduate or a graduate student? Undergraduate. Undergrad. So you're just a Pennsylvania kid walking around. Well, you know, I have to tell you, actually, he invited me to be a talk to some student group, and I was so busy, it slipped my mind. Um, uh, and I felt so embarrassed, and he came up with a smile and said, oh, Professor Siegel, we can reschedule it. And I said, this is a truly wonderful person. What a mensch. I was worried. I was like, is he okay? <laughs> yeah, he was worried I was okay. But I, I would say, and I repeat this in the preface of this new edition, when he offered to work for me, we were working through some risk return type of analysis and I said, uh, listen, this is going to take a little bit of time, but I want to get you familiar with the data. I know this was a Friday. Come in Monday and, you know, familiar yourself with the data. Come in Monday and we'll discuss how to do it to get the results. I know and, the answer to this. Keep yeah, going. I love this story. Yeah, I mean, and so uh, he came in on Monday and I said, Probably okay, Saturday. Yeah, <laughs> Saturday probably. I, you know. Who knows? I was in on Saturdays. It was definitely in on Saturday. It was a Saturday. All right. Jeremy remembers better than I. Um and, you know, I said, okay, let's talk about it. And he said, well, Professor Siegel, I do have, I think, all the answers that you yeah, want. I've done this already. And uh, Here I said, you do? And we looked. I looked him over. I said, this looks right. And I said, okay, I, I, I've got someone special here. Um, and I did. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, I know I have a lot of business professors who listen to this podcast and assign specific ones to their students, but that should be a lesson to somebody who says, hey, how do I stand out for the crowd? When a professor says, come in, we'll talk about the assignment, and you come in and say, I've already crunched a number, here's the data, most of what you've written previously is right, here's a couple of little mistakes I caught. That has to impress you, right? Oh, uh, d- definitely. It definitely impressed me. I mean, all through our relationship, you know, I, you know, I mean, it's amazing because he, you know, travels back and forth, you know, living in Philadelphia and, and, and working in New York, although he doesn't necessarily have to do it as much now because of, you know. How much are you splitting your time? Yeah. So we, Wisdom Tree went to be a fully remote first organization. And you uh-huh. talked about John. He was the most New York in person. I mean, I tried to move to Miami called 12, 13 years ago, he said, no, you can't move to Miami. Right. Uh, that's where I grew up. And 
we're now completely remote first. We find it to be very productive. We are, you know, we have a global team. I have a team in Europe. Uh, my research team is almost 30 people and, and almost half, you know, half of them in Europe. And we can be more interconnected doing, talking to them weekly in a different format right. through Zoom uh, or Teams that we're on. You know, it's, it's a, so I don't come up as much, but you do find the benefits. I was in the office yesterday. We had six of our team members in the office and you do find little things. There is the benefit of the collaboration that you find things you wouldn't have found on a Zoom call because you're bantering. That's the key word, though, is collaboration, to have everybody schlep into the office to sit and stare at a computer or worse, do Zoom calls from the office is kind of pointless. Yes. But when you could get together face to face and have conversations, that's a very different experience. So let's talk a little bit about this book, which is really become a classic. The, the Really, the first question I got to ask is, how do you go about updating and editing a book that really has stood the test of time for, geez, it's it's almost 30 years. It's on everybody's must-have list, top 10 finance book, best investment books of all time. Do you approach updating this with a little bit of trepidation? What's the experience well, like? Well, you're right. Uh, the first edition came out in May of uh, 1994 using data up through 1992. So we have 30 years more so data. now it's really stocks for the long run. And now, of course, <laughs> stocks for the longer this run. This is the sixth edition, but it's also the fifth edition was written just after the financial crisis, a couple of years after the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things had gone. I'm in a huge bull market. Um, the COVID, which is a whole chapter on, I mean, it's very up to date. I mean, it even includes some data on the recent bear market, which most general books can't get as far as as we got the 2022 bear market a little bit is in there really yeah a oh, little bit is in there um uh, you know we don't know if it's exactly over yet we'll certainly talk about that later but um jeremy will uh, let you know yeah we'll, we'll, we'll nail we'll try to nail that <laughs> but um there was so much more i had to say this is the biggest revision and the, the most new material of any of them. There's, there's been almost five new chapters that have been added, and there's been parts that have been added of others. I mean, obviously, I deal with cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, which was mm -hmm. not an issue 10 years ago. You can feel how heavy it is. I know. This yeah. is this is vaccinated and boosted. This, yeah. is, this is really... Um, not that the other books were skimpy, but it, you could tell this has a little bit of a heft to it. So, yeah. We have, we, we, for instance... Um, in the past, I had one chapter basically on value and growth. There's four chapters that are directly related to value and growth now. Really? I mean, and other factor investing, which became very popular in the last 10 years. Uh, one section I added to another one was uh, on real estate. I'd never had anything on real estate returns before. I mean, and these are just some of the changes that I wanted to put in to make it more complete. So let's talk about some of these additions that you added. We'll start with real estate. Yeah. Your friend, Professor Bob Schiller over Bob at Yale, Schiller, right. puts out the Case-Shiller Housing Index. Right. Yes. And I believe if you look at housing for the long run, doesn't do much better than inflation, does it? So this is the interesting thing. The price doesn't do much better than inflation, but there's a return. Well, you got to live somewhere to yeah, start, yeah. Right? First of all, there's two types. First of all, it's your own house residential. And then... We now have, and this is uh, the, some of the research we have, we have 50 years of REIT data uh -huh. that we never had before. 
So I felt it was long enough. I mean, it's not the 220 years of right. stock market data, right. but 50 years is still a good time. So I, sure. I, I did a very complete analysis on that. And let me just summarize, I think, the most interesting part. The return on the read index is virtually exactly the same as the S&P 500. Huh. Most people say, oh, my God, it's the same and it's so much more stable. No. This is the interesting thing. People think real estate is more stable than the stock market. In every recession except one, and that was the tech bust of 2000, uh -huh. the drawdown of REITs was greater than the S&P. Huh, that's really interesting. See, you know, people don't get a print on their house every tick day, by tick, every second, second by second. Yeah, right. exactly. So it feels stable because you're not seeing prices. Exactly, exactly. But in reality, any day you want to put your house up for sale, you might get a different if price. You, I mean, you know, if, if the times are bad and then you say, i got to sell it in the next five minutes, <laughs> you don't want to look at that price. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you mentioned you have a couple of new chapters on value and growth. Up until this year, value seemed to have been struggling against yeah. growth, certainly in the 2010s. Growth wildly outpaced That's value. That's a euphemism, Barry, struggling. Um, I'm being polite. <laughs> well, you know, okay, uh, so value got its, its ass been hard. I could say that, right? Yeah, you value can say got that. Its butt it has struggled. By growth. It, it, is my, it has mightily struggled. Why do you think that is, given the historical advantage of value over everything else? And, 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 and you know, I mean, I mean everyone has, has said this way before me, and it was the worst 10 years um, actually, the worst 15 years in history. I mean, we, we have value and growth back to 1926. Mm -hmm. There's never been anything that has has approached the underperformance. And I would say the major reason for that was the boom of the giant tech firms. So it's Apple, uh, it's Amazon, Yeah, it's I mean, Google, it used to be called FANG. Some have right. gone out of uh, favor, obviously, <clears throat> with the bear market or, or have shifted. And arguably, they went from an underpriced position in 2004, I'd say, right. um, or 2006, seven, eight. They were underpriced probably at that time, given their tremendous further growth and as is usual they got overpriced at the top mm -hmm. but that i'm not going to say the word hijacked the market because that sounds like they did something illegal they, they had they had a lot of lot more mind but, share but, but, relative I mean, to you know the percent that was wrapped up in that and then of course if you were a cap weighted index you were there in that and um it's been virtually impossible for any value strategy to have overcome the great bull market of the big tech companies of the last 15 years, which probably ended when, you know, early 20, late 2021 or 20, early 2020. So, so the obvious question for both of you is, what does this suggest about near-term future performance? And by near-term, I mean the next decade, because I'm talking to you guys, it's normally, we're talking about centuries, but for the rest of the 2020s, what does this say about value versus growth? Interestingly, this year, you've had a big correction, and, and a lot of the, the mega growth stocks, the unprofitable tech stocks, collapsed the hardest. Right. It's interesting. Unprofitable what, tech stocks. Unprofitable tech. Right. What's interesting, with, even within value, there's been a big dispersion. So value's beating growth by, like in the Russell value versus growth, they call it almost 2,000 
basis points. Jesus, but, that's giant. But there's even still high dividend stocks versus the traditional price to book value has got like another thousand basis points. Wow. It's, it's so high dividend stocks are definitely doing well relative. So some of that is, well, what is a high dividend stock that's not in the price to book index? It's overweight energy stocks, which have been killer the past year. And, and in the S&P, it got down to 3%, right? It was double digits, 15. This is the challenges of cap weighting. It rides things down and will never sure. add to the weight. But high dividend stocks, you know, in, in one of our baskets of high dividends, DHS, is 18 to 20% energy. And that resource rebalances every December. It's going to stay that way. So uh, a high dividend index, how has something like that done in 2022? It's up about 2,000 basis points ahead of the S&P. I mean, it's basically largely meaning if Meaning flat, it's flat, flat while the, the S&P is down 20 25% for the yes. year, depending yes. on where we close to And still, where you say, well, has you, have you had all your outperformance and so what? It's at 11 times earnings, a 9% earnings yield. So it's still cheap. 9% earnings yield before rebalancing in a few, you know, in nine per, that's a That's a pretty substantial earnings yield, isn't yeah. it? Versus a 1.5% tips rate with a real yield, bond yield, almost an 8% equity, probably an 8% equity premium on this basket. Uh-huh. And, and so for the volatility in the markets, I do think it is still, you know, you could say decade ahead. It, it, all right, but the next three to five years, I think it is a very attractive place to be. So the product that focuses on high dividend yielding value stocks at Wisdom Tree, which funds would be covered by that? DHS is the U.S. version. There's mm-hmm. a whole family. Uh, DHS is the U.S. DTH is the international. DEM is the emerging. You know, you go to the emerging markets, which has been way out of favor. Wow. For Whoa. years and years and years. This is like a five, five PE type stocks. Now, this is, you know, you're going to China, uh, China banks, you're going to energy materials, commodities, cyclical stocks, but you're getting close to double digit yields. And, wh- and what is the dividend yield now on something like DEM? The average yield of the stocks, I mean, you want a stock to look at, Petrobras in Brazil. Uh-huh. Almost a 40% dividend. The problem is it's in Brazil and people are nervous right. about and, that. But energy is, you know, they're paying out a big percentage of their earnings as dividends. This is a well covered. This is, you know, it's a right. very interesting dynamic. Yeah, I think, what is the PE of Brazil? Like six or seven? And it, whose currency is up on the year? It's 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 not many, but and, Brazil. And it looks like, I think, uh, the Silva is going to win. Who's a. Uh, I mean, you know, we could have opinion Bolsonaro versus De Silva. I mean, they both have deficiencies, obviously. But uh, That's what you the know, D's stand for. I mean, you know, De Silva was uh, president for quite a, a long time, and uh, although he was considered a socialist at one point, he let the markets work, and the valuations were much higher under De Silva than they were under Bolsonaro. Um, on on, I mean, I'm not advocating Brazil. I'm just kind of commenting on. What you know, commenting on Brazil, but I mean, we could talk about other countries. Sure, that, what what I other mean, countries no, look I mean, interesting? I mean, I mean, what we, we were forced to mark all Russia down to zero. Is yeah. that correct? Right. We're, but we're one of the few index providers, and actually, your your Bloomberg colleagues like love me talking about this. But we're the only index provider who hasn't kicked Russia out of the index. Why is it? And that? we're going through the index rebalance this week. Actually, and I'm still not kicking out the index. I'm marking it at zero. Right. What's the downside? It's already marked at zero. 
the, so the investment downside the or investment, the political fallout? Well, it's the political fallout. But my, my point is I'm, I'm trying to run these funds in the best interest of shareholders. I mean, not that is, you could sell your Russian you, holdings anyway. There's right. no market But so the sell. day that you're allowed to sell it, should I sell it yeah, the that, day they're allowed to sell it? It's a government requirement. What, was that an SEC requirement? It's Who's all a political point? statement, right? So there's – now – it's a very the, interesting there is no place thing. to sell that. So you market it to zero. You and market it to zero. Happens, we happens. keep it in the index, and if it ever has value, we can recoup the value for shareholders. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're not forcing it out right today because there's no real point to doing that. Right. Yeah. Why? Why? I mean, we don't love Russia or Putin. I. I it's it's horrendous what's Who going does? on. No one does. But at that particular point, the Russian stocks will probably be reallowed into the index. Once Putin is gone, Russian stocks become attractive. Is that a fair statement? Uh, well, smart money would maybe be snatching them up before then. I don't know if they could. Right. You can't uh, get executed. Uh, and You can't trade in anything. Can no, you? I, I don't know if you can trade in derivatives to get there and do, do private transactions. It, it, but, but throughout the entire emerging markets now, with the dollar so high, with interest rates going up, fear the, the debt, I mean, you're getting – what is the average PE ten of the emerging markets? It, well, in this high dividend is five, but yeah, in yeah. the in the broad in the broad index it Cap could be weighted yeah, a little. It's probably twelve, thirteen, something like okay. that. So pretty reasonable. Yeah. Don't forget. I mean, up until very recently, and even today, the GDP growth of those countries is higher than the United States in the developed world. I mean, still right. several points higher, even with all the problems that they have. Not that that always you know means a difference. We talk a little bit about not not paying that much attention to GDP growth, you know, in, in the book. But um, I also want to say, because you, you started out on value and growth, mm-hmm. and we point this out in one of the chapters, but a couple things that come to mind right now. We have had these growth spurts of overvaluation through history, and it appears, at least in the post-World War II period, they come about every 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nifty 50s, which was a period where institutions, pension funds bought just growth stocks. Late at, 60s, we're talking. Yeah, late 60s, early 70s, no matter what their P.E. ratio were. I mean, they bought such beauties as Polaroid at 90 times earnings, Eastman Kodak, Sears, and Roebuck, and, and they, they paid an astronomical price. They all collapsed later. Some did better. I mean, IBM was on the list and a few others, but many did not. Then 25 years after that, in 2000, well, we all know, the dot-com burst and then bust. Then we had, you know, 2020, 2021, another, oh, not quite 25 years, but 22 years. I mean, it seems like, I'm not going to say in 2045 or 50, we'll get another one, but it seems like there's a cycle where people, investors get over-enthusiastic about a group, a group of stocks that have been growing fast and then inevitably overprice them. All right, I'm going to take that bet with you for 2024. My girls, well, when, they, when they're in their 30s, they're going to be getting their capital. They're going well, to I'd be, be very be thankful to be around them right. to pay got, off that debt. Tell you but. what, I got I got 100 bucks. <laughs> says you're wrong, and I'll pay you in 2045. <laughs> okay. How about that? So, so one of the things you bring up in this that is so interesting is if we have these speculative excesses and they seem to come along once a generation or so, is it really just a question of the new folks coming through the system just haven't read their history? And Maybe it's a generational thing, and you're right. Once uh, It is a generation usually considered 20 to 25 years. 
I've been through several, so maybe I have more institutional memory or whatever of going through what we went through. But uh, in the post-war period, we've had these cycles. Um, Now, what interestingly enough is that oftentimes the bust brings them to undervaluation eventually. Mm -hmm. When I look back at 2005, 6, 7, yeah, those growth stocks that collapsed from way too high probably were too low. I mean, the growth index and the value index 10 years ago were almost the same multiple. Really? That's amazing. They'd compress, and the high dividend stocks had a P-E ratio higher than the market. There's a lot of people writing about that back in 2012, 2013, that they started selling at a premium multiple to the market, which is very obviously not the case today. So here's the question about 2020, and we could talk a little bit about the pandemic. When you have an event from outside the market, sort of feels less like the dot-coms and evaluation issue and more like the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. It's totally outside of the system. Right. But a, a lot of these things were building before the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the pandemic probably accelerated because people said, okay, it's technology, you know, um, and and then they fell in love even more. Now, now there was the Pelotons and the DocuSigns. I mean, All the work-from-home stocks. Yeah, the, there were the work-from-home stocks, many of them— using technology, some of them less and some of them more, that really took the boost. But the surge, I mean, you know, Netflix, uh, Facebook, uh, Meta, I mean, they took root and began soaring before the pandemic. But that seemed to accelerate it because people said, oh, well, no no face-to-face technology is going to be the wave of the future. And with all the money that was created by the Federal Reserve, it just could go right to those stocks. And a lot so, of these stocks are becoming value stocks, by well, the way. Well, I was going to say— So a number of them are getting added to value indexes. A number of them in our earnings index are being overweighted now, Meta as an example. Well, Facebook is cut in half. Netflix, even though they had a good quarter, they're way off their lows. Peloton got shellac, DocuSign— Telehealth, you could go through uh, all the whole these list. are 70, 80 percent. Yeah, that's many of them top to bottom. I and, mean, the ones that are really significant, like Apple and Microsoft, held they haven't up fallen that much. They were too high, but they were not. They were not crazy, you know. And I mean, some people consider Apple to be the conservative one. Um, although, you know, years Some ago, guy it named always, Warren Buffett. Yeah, everyone, yeah. I mean, yeah, Warren Buffett, his, his first real tech stock right. was, was, was Apple. And he still looks at it as a more conservative, and their multiple has been Well, more it used moderate. to be 10, 11, 12 right. all the time. I mean, and it never got up to be 50, 60, 70 ever. Right. Uh, even at, at the height of uh, enthusiasm for it. Right. More, uh, not quite a value play, but more reasonable. Before we digress back to stocks for the long run, you recently were on TV where you had quite the rant about the Fed. And not only was it a, a bit of a, uh, what is the Fed doing? They're late. They missed inflation to start. They missed the peak of inflation. They're over-tightening. It went totally viral. Um, I think not just because people agreed with you, but you were very passionate. You were very excited about it. Tell us a little bit about what led to that and what your thoughts are on well, where we are with the Federal Reserve. Well, Barry, it's, you know, you, I interviewed me how many months ago? I forget. I mean, it was 2020. A, yeah, no, that was right after the pandemic And I, began. To, I told you that there are going to be a huge amount in inflation. Yep. You said, and you I, said both fiscal and monetary were going to cause a surge. Yeah. And 
Uh, and I was yelling about it through all of 2021 and the fact that they didn't begin to pivot until the November of 2021 and they didn't start doing anything until, see, I'm still getting excited about this, <laughs> until <laughs> March of 2022 is unforgivable. Late, uh, to late me, to in the my party, opinion, right? um, it's gross negligence as a steward of our monetary system. And uh, that it makes me emotional because I've taught this subject for half a century and um, I'm not saying that anyone that's at the Fed now was a student of mine, but and I taught. 10, but we would have been better off if they were. Maybe. Well, they. I hate to say it, but the answer <laughs> is yes, they would. They, they so, had a chance to put them as part of the Fed, and they didn't take them up on that. Well, it's a very interesting. Up. I mean, actually, under Bush, I was nominated as the Fed, and then I got a call. We started the process, and then they got a call and say. Um, Jeremy, the Democrats are going to hold it up because it's going to be a presidential election. They think they're going to take over. And, you know, so uh, let's wait and see what happens. You've done more good from your Thank post you. at Wharton yeah, I, perhaps, than a six-year post at the And, you Fed. know, it's just, it's, it often right? is like Milton Friedman, who refused to take a post in Washington. He said it just compromises you. I'd rather be a critic from the outside. And Plus he the, was, weather, the weather. He was terrible. a critic from the outside and an effective and an effective critic from yeah. the outside uh, to do that. But so I was yelling and screaming. I said, is um, uh, Jay Powell behind the curve? I said, he's so far behind the curve is he's up in the bleachers <laughs> while, while the pitcher's throwing the, uh, the catcher at home plate. That's how far behind the curve he was. So the Fed has a giant research department. They have wonderful economists, really smart well, people. Well, I don't know them. how wonderful they are, Barry. I'm going to have to tell they you. Miss this? They're not so wonderful. I don't know. I mean, because they were the ones that kept on saying this is temporary inflation. They fed that, uh, I'm sure, to Powell and the others, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what also uh, upsets me is the Fed was designed uh, 19 FO, uh, it only has 18 members of the Federal Open Market Committee, and it's supposed to be diverse opinions. Uh, there is virtually no diversity of opinion. You would think that you know, at least out of those 18, three or four would say, hey, we're just way overstimulating here. We're going to have trouble if we don't stop. Not a word. That upsets me, too. They're not being constituted. It's groupthink. It's groupthink mm -hmm. that's totally dominating the Fed. All these things are happening at once, and that's why I engage around. But let's go on. So wait, wait, I think before, before you move on from that, I just have to point out that this isn't hindsight bias. You were saying this in early 2020, right? A year before inflation really Ramped started up. to rear its head. You were lots of fiscal stimulus, lots of monetary stimulus. Wait, guess much. what happens? Yeah, and I knew it was going to be inflation. And as you know, I said the increase of the money supply in 2020 was the greatest in history. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we have a chapter in the book on COVID. I point out the long history. I talk a lot about what should have happened, what the Fed should have done, what it did wrong, and why what happened happened. Um, and Re I was really, in a way, when I started thinking about the book, this was before COVID. So I, and there was no such thing as a COVID chapter. But once COVID <laughs> hit, I wanted to put, there's a chapter on the great financial crisis. Now that was put in on the last edition. Mm -hmm. And there had to be a chapter on COVID and the monetary response that came from that. So here we are. The Federal Reserve is belatedly recognizing inflation. Yeah. They've, they've raised rates several times, 75 bips 
at a time. We're now three and a quarter on our yeah. way, if you believe consensus, to the November meeting, taking us to four to four and a quarter, whatever that range is. And arguably another 75 after that. Yeah. So yeah. we'll be at 5%. So two questions. 5% First, funds. So 5% funds rate, what does that do to the economy? And are we already sufficiently past yeah. peak inflation? Let's you see, that's that's the thing. They're looking just at interest rates. They say, well, i got to get interest rates way above inflation. They're failing to look at a number of other indicators that show how tight they are. Look at the dollar mm-hmm. soaring to all-time highs. Look at the money supply. And that's something that is, you know, I've been looking at for 50 years. And the money supply has shrunk since March. Now, that is unprecedented, almost unprecedented. I mean, going back, I think there's only one other episode in the post-war period where over the next five months we've had the money supply shrink. Is that because of the end of quantitative easing, or are there other no, factors it's more driving because that? No, it's actually because the rise of interest rates has slowed down credit mm-hmm. and has moved funds out of banks so much that the liquidity is actually declining in the system. And that that was the first thing that said, whoa, you know, I've written, and in fact, uh, in the chapter I talk about what is consistent with a 2% inflation rate is 5% money growth. Now, they grew at 25% in 2020 and about 18% in 2021, but it doesn't mean now you slam on the brakes and go to zero. Right. Because that could really precipitate a recession. I want them to go back to a 5% growth I think that interest rates, and by the way, there's a whole new chapter on interest rates and stock prices and the downward trend of interest rates over the last 20, 25 years, something I talk about a For, lot. 40 years, from, 40, from Volcker in 1981, Well, 40 right? years, yes, and, and, and real interest rates. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the early part was a lot of reduction of inflation. Okay. Uh, inflation has remained pretty good. It's been a reduction of those real rates. I mean, tips... In 2020, the 10 year tip uh-huh. was f- nearly four and a half percent. At the mm-hmm. beginning of this year, it was minus one. Now uh-huh. it's ratcheted up to one and a half because of the Fed tightening. But this long, we talk about this long decline, what it's caused by. A lot of people think it's caused only because the Fed has been easy. That's not true. There's a lot of very fundamental reasons that I discuss in that chapter why these real interest rates are declining, what that means for stocks and what that means for the Fed and what that means for the markets. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's talk about that because we've previously discussed things like uh, how much more productive we are and the impact of globalization and software and technology. What does that mean for the long-term interest rate? Once we get through whatever's going on post-COVID with with this inflation spike, do you expect us to return back to, if not zero, but historically low well, rates? This has been the biggest surprise of all. I actually thought we would have a spurt of, of technology. I mean, I think Zoom does replace a lot of things that don't need to be face-to-face and mm-hmm. other things, you know, DocuSign. I mean, we could go on and on. 
the biggest shock has been that productivity has collapsed. The first two quarters of this year has been the slowest productivity growth we've had since World War II. And not only by a small amount, by uh, nearly twice as great as any other collapse of productivity. And I'm rather upset the Fed has not addressed this. You know, uh, what does this mean for the markets? Uh, are people saying they're working at home and not working at home? Did you did you see the Liberty Street economics research paper? So previously, a lot of data was showing during the pandemic work from home. People weren't commuting. They were working longer hours. They were they had substituted their commute for more work time. This recent paper at Liberty Street Economics blog, which is the New York Fed research blog, said, oh, it turns out that people have adjusted to work from home. And they're not only are they not working more hours, they're working less hours. They're spending more time with the family and they're actually sleeping more, which is unprecedented for Americans. But, but are they putting out what they need to put out? Well, the, profits are still doing well. So it's, 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 Profits are, are still doing well. But uh, real wages aren't doing probably because don't forget a lot of people have been locked into a lower real wage sure. situation. Don't forget a lot of firms that locked in their debt at two percent, two and a half, and three. I mean, this is golden for them. They've mm-hmm. been raising prices. Their debt prices are the same. They're only now are they beginning to get the pressure on the employee prices. They got a lot of leverage, uh-huh. uh, so profits are are doing. Okay, although profits in the first half of this year were pretty sluggish, but we had negative GDP growth. Um, You know, I keep on going on and asking, how did we have 4 million new people hired in the payroll reports this year Mm -hmm. and have negative GDP growth? Well, negative real GDP, but in in nominal terms. Yeah, but negative real. Right. I mean, you're putting more more hours. I mean, we've got 4 million new workers that are producing less real goods. How so that, can that be? That's telling us the negative numbers are all inflation-driven. Yeah, but why are firms hiring? What are these people doing? Um, I mean, I mean, arguably, I, I they're, mean, they're, they're, the real numbers strip away inflation. It's so we're producing less goods now with four million people than we did in December of 2021. Is that right? Yes. When, I, when we look at consumer spending. No, real real GDP is lower. Now, now we're going to get GDP at the end of this quarter for the Which is likely quarter. to be positive. Yeah, so 2%. But we were negative the first two. So we're basically unchanged. Flat with for four the year, million, sure. Yeah, I mean, and maybe slightly negative. Four million new workers, the same number of goods. So CARES Act 1 was $2 trillion. The second CARES yeah. Act was another trillion. The third one, uh, that one under Biden, the first yeah. two under Trump, was another trillion. You give yeah, more Ameri- trillion. You, yeah. you give Americans four to five trillion dollars. We're going to go out and spend it. Well, they did, and that produces the inflation. GDP and the goods. measures GDP measures the amount of goods that are produced. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has always been linked with the amount of labor, uh-huh. because labor is uh, three quarters of uh, the value of input. We hired four million more. We had the same capital as before. Right. Four million more. And the only thing that we then record is a drop of productivity. We've hired four million more, but they're just not working. So what? how much of this is just the velocity of the money moving through the system? Are we seeing, we seeing faster money or slower money with all this fiscal stimulus? 
You know, the, is the, the pig through the pipeline? The monetary stimulus is responsible for the inflation. Yes. The GDP strips out the inflation and says, how much goods are you producing? And uh-huh. why are we producing less goods with 4 million more people? Only because people are not working as hard. It is not as productive. Now, we could get a bounce back of, of productivity, and if we get a bounce back, wow, that will put downward pressure on prices because we'll, we'll replenish the supply chain. Uh-huh. And that will put downward pressure on prices if we get a bounce back. It's, it's very interesting to see like this question of what are these workers doing? When we posted that question on our podcast to mm-hmm. Don Cohn, the former Fed vice chair, sure. and Don thought maybe we're undercounting GDP. Like, so like, will future revisions revise GDP higher? Isn't it a fair argument to say our measurement of productivity has always been terrible? We wildly undercount productivity. And what's the old joke? The computer advantages are everywhere but the productivity side. Yeah, well, it was it was actually Robert Solo. That's right. Uh, who, who, who said, I might we say. see computers everywhere except in the productivity statistics. Right. That was his quote. But I want to follow up on what Jeremy was saying because we did interview uh, Don Kime and he said, oh, I expect them to revision. Well, believe it or not, we did get the revision and it didn't change. So what does that mean? Uh, it, it does, we did get that revision, and believe it or not, it actually moved one measure of GDP, which is called gross national income rather uh-huh. than gross national product, another way of measuring it, down. So it did not at all eliminate the puzzle of why was this a productivity collapse in the first half. Huh. So, again, we might get a bounce back. Let's hope it is because the standard of living depends on productivity. Productivity is the measure of standard of living. It's output per unit hour worked. So it's like your real wage stripped away f- from inflation. And, um, you know, real wages are down. Productivity is down. What is going on? I've posited this question to a number of economists, Fed researchers, and others because I have consistently said I feel like myself, my firm, has just gotten more and more productive. We put out more and more output with the same or marginally more people. And the pushback was, you're in a white-collar content and creative business that you get to take full advantage of every new tech innovation. Most of the non-white-collar jobs don't have that same advantage. Yeah, I mean, if you're a bus driver, you've got to go to the bus and drive. You can't do that remotely. Not yet. And there's no productivity gains taking place with no, that? No, What about industry? Are industry nuts? Manufacturing nuts? Well, they're gains? supposed to. I mean, we, you know, we've always devised new machines that do things faster and better. I mean, go through, you know, uh, what it is. And that has been productivity. In fact, productivity in the goods-producing sector historically has been much better than the service because the service is, are you ever going to be more productive really like, you know, a haircut in the barber shop? I mean, it takes what it does. Or they they say the orchestra. There's no productivity in the orchestra, you know. I've been back to the barber shop once since the pandemic. (laughs) Um, Although they're springing up everywhere, these fancy barber shops. So, People, so I don't know. home haircut. So yeah, here's the I'm question. Getting you, you I'm getting home haircuts. You look like a, you could use a Floby. A good, Probably. Uh, <laughs> right? But but here's the real question is, have we been mismeasuring uh, productivity or do we genuinely have a problem well, with slackers and people working well, from home? I, like I like Schwartz over are, here. I think economists, I mean, this is very new data. Don't forget the first two quarters was a shocking drop. Mm-hmm. We're going to see the third quarter looks like mediocre productivity at best. We're going to get 2% GDP growth, maybe zero productivity. It's not going to be as bad as it, 
But I think as we collect more data, it's going to be a major topic. And I think in 2023, we'll have a better handle on this situation. I've just been a little bit surprised that the Fed, et cetera, has not been trying to address this because how has it become so vigorous on pressing monetary policy when it, what is really happening in the real economy? I want to just mention and ask you about some of just the key points within the book that through all these additions have not changed, have been well, consistent, starting with what is the long run return for stocks, both in nominal and real inflation adjusted terms? Well, I mean, that was it. Uh, the first edition data through 1992 from the beginning of the 19th century, 6.7 percent. Real. Inflation. That's real. Wow. Real. Dividends plus capital Total return, 6.7 percent. stocks, compound annual. You add 30 years, and we went through to June of this year to make sure we got the recession in, Uh 6.7%. Unchanged, the same exact thing. Given everything that's happened in 30 years, the financial crisis, the COVID crisis, the dot-com boom. uh, And bust. yeah, uh, Yeah, and bust. I mean, through all of that, the real return has remained the same. And bonds were about half? A uh, little... Bonds were half, but are much less now. I mean, the real oh, returns really? on bonds. Well, when bonds interest rates peaked in 2000, it was a great 20, 30-year period for bonds. Right. And I remember saying on all the networks in 2021 that the 40-year bull market, because it started in 1981 with the peak right. through 2021, was over. I and it that. is over with a vengeance, even more of a vengeance than I thought it was going to be over with, with a vengeance. And the real return on bond has been absolutely terrible, as we know, on a comparative basis, even worse than stocks since it, it actually, um, not so, since the the bull market ended but at that point, but from the, the low point in 2020. So I said something at an event where um, I had sent to a group of young people Hey, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, you really don't need bonds in your portfolio. You have a such a long horizon. You don't need that ballast. You go even further than that and say most portfolios could be fine if they're equity only. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, what we show, I mean, and this hasn't changed over 30-year periods in real terms after inflation, stocks are less volatile than bonds. That's wild. So now you have the 10-year Four percent or so, depending yes. on when this broke. At what point are we done with Tina? There is no alternative to stocks. At what point do bonds get cheap enough where they start to look attractive? Well, a lot of people, it's interesting, are talking today and they say, look, at four percent, I can lock that in for, well, even two years, four and a half. <laughs> right. I said, yes, you can lock that in. But, you know, after two years, I think the stock market is going to be 20 to 30 percent higher than it is today. Really? That's yeah. a bold move from yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hold on. You, I'm gonna let me just see if I could buy some out of the money call options <laughs> and on on the street. Yeah, it of, has uh, to be long dated though. Yeah, no, you go out two years. You, you, you can get, get out leaps. two years. I mean, and by the way, when people tell me four and a half percent is good, it certainly is good relative to, to zero. Years. <laughs> zero. But let me ask you, that's before inflation, right? And when the long run on stocks is six after inflation, tell me how you're going to be better off in the long run. It sounds like you're not. You should write a book about this. (laughs) That's right. So the one question I always forget to ask, and I wrote it down, so I'm not going to forget to ask, is gold. Yeah. 
Tell me your thoughts on... Well, the long run on gold Uh is less than 1% above inflation. So it's basically an inflation hedge long run. Now, what's happened with gold, it hasn't... it, it It is... Failed, so to speak, as an inflation hedge. I, I mean, does that surprise you? You would have thought 2022 should have been the year gold exploded. But I think the big difference is, I, I mean, I think that in the early part of this inflation, Bitcoin usurped the role of gold. Millennial digital gold. Digital millennial gold. They wanted to go to that, and it was sold as an inflation hedge, and that's another thing that made it go up too high. Um, you know, What, now Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Yeah, and but all Bitcoin of them. ran up when inflation was under two percent, right? Yeah, but that was the innovation and all the rest, and then it was being sold as the inflation hedge because the truth is there is going to be a limited number of bitcoins. There's not a limited number of dollars, so there was some logic to that. That makes uh, sense. Now it shouldn't go up as much as it did, but the logic was it is the new inflation hedge. The Bitcoin, it serves as the gold where in, in 1978, 79, and 80, people rushed to gold. There was no Bitcoin. Right. People now were rushing to Bitcoin, and the younger people don't care about gold, um, and, and it wasn't driving them. And, and we need to do a disclosure on this because my firm and your firm, Wisdom Tree and Ritholtz Wealth Management, Work together on the—tell us, Jeremy, give us the full— the, There's uh, an RWM Wisdom Tree— crypto index or a basket of 1415 right. we bogalized uh crypto which he would trying to index size like like right more diversified exposure than just bitcoin or, or so Ether. so full disclosure that's out there but you're gonna say something about bitcoin i was gonna say something about gold also i uh-huh. mean i think gold in dollar terms has been a big failure gold in yen terms has been great gold in euro terms. now i fi- hate that argument no, you know but- why because people always tell me you should have gone back in time and bought gold in fill in the blank two years ago. Well, nobody said that back then. It's easy to look after the fact. Isn't that just a currency bet? Well, the point is our team does a lot of work on gold because we're big commodity players in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we have some modeling on what drives gold prices. Uh-huh. And certainly negative interest rates. Like, you know, gold had this cost of carry. It had to compete with bonds. Right. Then you had all this negative interest rate debt in Europe. And now it's obviously a positive carry versus a negative rate. That went away. That was one of the things driving. So real rates was a big factor in gold. So the fact that real rates went up 250 basis points, that's a big headwind to gold. Mm-hmm. The dollar surging a is head, a big a headwind. headwind. Headwind to gold. So in other words... It's not just inflation, it's inflation minus rates. Real rates being from negative 250 base point move in real rates, you could say, wow, gold is really doing much better. Than than stocks and bonds. I mean, it is. Uh, Well, it's uh, only down 9% this year, but not what I would have expected given inflation. But given the move in real rates, it's actually, it's surprisingly doing even better than that, given some of the modeling. Yeah, Yeah, and we talk about inflation, and I I do want to get this in... Sure. About inflation, because it's part of what we were talking about in earlier about the rant on right, the Fed right. being too tight. I have maintained, and now there's finally papers and talk about this, that the inflation data that we're getting today, particularly core inflation, is over, overestimated and inflated, so to speak. The, on the services side versus the, uh, or the, the good side of or both? housing. Owners and equivalent rent is problematic. Uh, Owners equivalent rent and housing costs and rental and even not owners equivalent, just the rental part of that. Uh, We 
basically because of the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics computes it, it's very lagged in housing prices. So we didn't record enough inflation in Previously. the last two years. Right. And now we're over going to over record inflation and are today in the next couple of years. Something very similar had happened heading into the financial crisis. Like 04, 05, 06, BLS was behind on yeah. the inflation reporting because yes. it was embedded in housing. And then once people flipped from buying to renting, suddenly they overshot on the other right. way, which raises an interesting question. If the FOMC is raising their rates, which is helping to drive mortgage rates higher, which is sending all these people to rent, is the Fed indirectly making inflation higher? First of all, they are responsible for the inflation. They are responsible for the fact that the Case-Shiller housing index from the month of the pandemic, 2020, through the spring of this year, was up 40%. That's a big number, isn't it? Yes, 40%. Now, that's off the pandemic lows, or is that, no. has that dropped off? No, this is from March, and then it went down a bit during the pandemic. So, But I'm taking it from March, uh-huh. before the pandemic went down. 40% up national housing index, rental indexes, and this is before the Fed tightened, were up 30%. Wow. What is the core BLS number? 10%. Yeah, uh, yes. The government's inflation housing index is up like 11 or 12%. So, so they're that? way behind, and they're still showing a, an accelerating while the real housing prices are going down now. Right. Even with the limited inventory, prices are uh, softening. Going down. They're beginning. Bidding wars are over. Oh, That's yeah, not no, happening. Their discounts are, are, people are now really worried if they have to sell. So the question is, is the Fed aware of the fact how behind the curve their housing data is? I hope so. <laughs> they're writing some papers on it, but they yeah, don't seem to reflect it. Yeah, I the hope research so. department and the FOMC don't seem to communicate. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, you know. Um, but and then second, if they are aware of this, at what point do they? Well, they should be pivoting. In other words, right? At they, what point do they declare victory and say, they should okay, be saying, I say maybe do another fifty, but they won't. They're going to do seventy-five, right? And then stop and see what happens. Um. Now, Bullard is talking about 75-75 and waiting. Right. Uh, I think that's too aggressive and will accelerate the downside too much. That's my position. Well, I, uh, I think a lot of people agree with you, and I think that's part of the reason. If you live in the real world and you look at copper, you look at lumber, you look at gasoline prices, what do we have, 98 consecutive days of falling gas prices, and gas is now below where it was a decade ago, I think a lot of people agree with you. The Fed should declare victory and go home. Uh, well, you know, you're always on alert. But uh, pause and, you know, what surprises me, Barry, is that, you know, they exploded the money supply in 2020. When did we start really seeing inflation? 2021, end of 2021. Takes a year yeah, and yeah, change. Yeah, it takes right? a year. Now, months. all of a sudden, we're, we only are six months into this tightening cycle. Right. And they're saying, oh, my God, I'm not seeing the results I wanted. What's tightening, tightening? Well, it doesn't happen in six months. And in fact, you are seeing, the, if, and goods goods prices are way down. Way so, down, right. And service prices take even longer. So this idea, oh my God, it's not working, it's not working, we got to keep on hiking, is, is to me, uh, I'm flabbergasted. I mean, right. it, 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 it's totally different from what they were just saying on the other side when inflation was building and they say, oh, we don't see any inflation. 
despite the fact of exploding the credit and uh, and uh, uh, easy money policies that uh, we pers- we're petitioning Siegel for the Fed. This is <laughs> right. this or, or is just petition. Jay Powell have have Professor Siegel show up and I would explain. be happy to debate him. No, 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 not a debate. I want to send you to the Fed and you school them. Hey, here's what you guys seem to have forgotten since grad school. I wish there were another voice there, and I'm doing my best to bring some voices there. If it isn't me, maybe I can convince some of the Fed governors or presidents to bring that argument. Two Fed governors. I'm not a Fed watcher. I don't feel the need to hang on every speech on everything. But the two Fed governors that seem to be closest to making that pivot the one you just mentioned earlier and then lyle brainerd also yeah. seems to be saying uh, well you know we're they're starting beginning to, see- to make some noises but most of them are saying we're going to be tough through 2023 neil cascari yeah just said i mean something that's crazy, crazy this morning right yeah i mean to, to keep at these rates to 2023 right will cause the second worst collapse of the housing market in the post-war period. I actually think housing prices from their peak are going to go down 10 to 15%. Still leaves them up. Remember, they were right. up 40. But uh, if they continue this up higher, you know, it, uh, it it's going to get even worse. And, and it's not just how far they fall, but it's how long. If they're down 10% and there's no improvement over five or 10 years on you know, on a real basis just to go down and uh you know it'll crimp uh, the housing industry which is one of the most important industries in, our in, in the overall and it's not economy just you can see that in the auto industry I mean, the loan situations are going to get very hard to get a loan on on that uh, credit cards in general we haven't seen it in the real statistics not yet so are you how can, seeing it in some of the statistics the housing statistics are absolutely terrible right i i just showed in the middle of october the prospect Perspective home buyers traffic is almost as bad as the, the worst National part of the Association of Home Buyers and yeah. Wells Fargo does is that, one right. of the biggest collapses we've ever yeah. seen. Yeah, it's almost as bad as the middle of the pandemic, the yeah. early parts of the yeah. pandemic. So, I I hate asking the recession question, but I I feel I have to ask you: Do you th- feel that if the Fed continues on this path, we will find ourselves in a recession in 2023? And how bad potentially could it get? Well, it could. The longer they continue on this path, the way keep on hiking or stay, we're going to stay high for longer. Uh, I think the recession becomes a real possibility. I still think they have a chance to avoid one, uh, but the pivot stop right has, now and we avoid a recession. Or, 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 you know, if they just put a ceiling for the market and saying we're seeing progress and we can soon begin to pause. Uh, you know, that is what the market is looking at. What the market is so scared about is there seems to be no limit to their talk. Hike, 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 hike. It, because if they're going to wait for that core rate to go down to 2% a year, <laughs> given a the distortion in statistics, we are in for big trouble. So you raise a really interesting point there, which is some people believe that Jerome Powell thinks markets are too high and he won't be happy until he sees markets uh, take a haircut. Let's talk about that. I mean, I. What do you I, think I, about that? Well, he's like there, the anti-Greenspan in that well, way. Well, you know, we used to talk about Greenspan put. If there's disruption in the market, which I don't expect, um, then you know he will step in. I mean, that's right. what the central bank really disruption of the market. Something really bad happens, but, and he will step in. But if the market goes down another ten percent because he's not coming in. And if the market goes down another 10%, I suspect you're a buyer. Oh, I'm definitely a buyer. 
I'll tell you, when the Fed pivots, look at you, you, you'll see a, a thousand point. I love that you're saying this because day. we were just talking about this. It feels like the risks are very asymmetric, that the Fed could over-tighten, that we can miss earnings, that we could have a recession, and we could grind 5 10 15% lower. But heaven forbid the war in the Ukraine ends, we get some decent earnings, or the Fed says, okay, we— you know, we see we a five wait, handle. We can, wait. we can do one more and wait. Um, look uh, out! Look out above! Look out above! I, I, as I say, I think stocks are quite undervalued. Not that they've been the most undervalued by history. Obviously, we've had worse. But uh, I would say, in the if you buy stocks in a couple of years, you're going to be very happy. Today's special edition of Masters in Business is brought to you by Confirmation Bias. Barry's Confirmation Bias. What this show is all about. You're you're just talking my game. Everything you're saying is what I want to hear. And so I feel like I have no objectivity <laughs> and I'm just like ready to stand up and start waving a flag. Jeremy Schwartz, tell tell us why the professor is wrong. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The 20% are valued even with the fear that the Fed keeps doing what they're doing. We're, we talk about the S&P at 16 and a half times earnings. You Seems could, pretty reasonable, you right? You get some of these international markets. We're talking about the emerging markets at right. single-digit P's, but even broad developed markets, you get at half the valuation of the U.S. too. Europe has looked terrible for a long time. Yeah, Europe is selling at 10, right? And and yeah, with a fundamental screen, it's going to have even lower numbers. Even, I, I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, aren't they, they on a fundamental screen? If you do fundamentally weighted, and it's tilting under value, it's like eight or below, nine. Yeah, you could get very low. So rates. the pushback to that is, well, Europe is a mess, and yeah, they have the Russian right. gas and the threat of war. <laughs> yeah, well, U.S. small caps at nine to ten times earnings. On we have three different small cap ETFs, dividend based, earnings based. All of them are nine to ten times earnings. Uh, that small cap discounts. Small cap. Value is as cheap as we've seen in a long time, right? Small caps generally have been cheap relative to large caps. You're at sort of the bottom desk, you know, bottom few percent in the uh -huh. last thirty years, I and and forwarders have been very good from these levels. Um, we've been doesn't adding... mean it can't get worse, but if you're looking out at five years or ten yeah. years, yeah. You, so you know, when you when you get these low prices and dividend yields and earnings yields so high, you don't even need much appreciation to get great returns because. 10% earnings yield. Yeah, 10 percent earnings yield is a real yield. Wow! If prices and, and, and you say even if 10 years from now they're 10, you're getting 10% after inflation in the meantime. It's amazing. So I mean, you know, you don't even need them to move up in a pre, uh, in valuation if you hold on to to stuff that. So so before I get to my favorite questions, I got to ask one last question about the book. So you know, hundreds of thousands, a half a million copies of this have sold it's the sixth edition we now have a with with jeremy schwartz are we gonna continue to see future updates every what what has this been updated well, six this, times over 30 years six times now, so it's not every five years though i mean this was the longest period i said eight or nine years I think his wife thinks this is his last edition. Uh, <laughs> she is she looking for you to kick back and, and slow yeah, down a little she said bit. Slow down a little bit. Uh, Why do you know, I sense that that's the not torch. gonna happen? <laughs> it, are we passing the torch? Is the next uh, uh, edition gonna be Jeremy Schwartz with Jeremy Siegel? Is that what's gonna happen? That's a possibility. We actually have not had any formal discussion. Right. Um we don't need one right now. But stocks for the long run is going to be here for the long run. This is I going think, to continue. I think it's going to continue. Yes. 
stocks for the long run for the long run. Is that uh, <laughs> is that it? So let me just try and touch some of my favorite questions that I ask all my guests, but I'm going to ask them to you both at the same time because I want to see how that works, having never done this before. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Out of curiosity, during the lockdown, when you weren't ranting about the Fed, what were you guys doing? What were you watching? What was keeping you busy? What were you streaming on Netflix or Amazon? Ah, wow. What were we doing? Yeah, I be, we began, obviously, watching a lot more than I did before. Right. You, you know, know I, I loved The Crown. I loved... Um, Succession, believe it or not, um, people say, do you really watch Yellowstone? I said, yeah. Actually, I know I people did. who love Yellowstone. I mean, I love I, it. I, it's, it's like the Western version of Succession, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were you doing, I, I, I'm going to say, like, kids, I'm, I'm not that good with pop culture. But I mean, you have girls. You so, have three girls, right? So I have two girls. Two girls. Um, I, I would say I'm one who took the work. I was working more from home. My podcast consumption went way down, actually, mm -hmm. which is was that's one of the things I missed. No commuting, right? Because you're, I did it all on the plane and the commute. It's funny you say that because I watched our numbers go up, and I was the opposite of what I was expecting. Because on the train is when I listen to podcasts, and so I my my personal went down a lot. But as we start getting back into it, I'm, I'm getting back. What'd you watch with the girls? I honestly, they they do their own thing. My my seven year old's on YouTube. Like you can't get her off YouTube. Right. My ten year old is less on all that, so they're on their own little devices. Yeah. And one one thing we did, we kind of formed. You know, we stayed away from each other from March until Memorial Day, and then we decided. Listen, we kind of formed a pod of the family, and and we started spending a lot of time together um my Out, you could go outdoors right yeah. and Easy. and we you know believe it or not i've been in uh four international trips then two two family trips uh, abroad um since then so uh you know a lot we, of travel we've, yeah i mean a lot of people are surprised but we decided hey you know we're all pretty healthy and um you know, you know, we all Not, got vaccinated, and you know, if we're going to get it, it's going to be mild. And that's what you, you know, can hope for. How, who right? knows how many years you have left? Take right. advantage of what you have. Right. You you can't you can't hide. For you the can't rest hide of your forever life. because there's dangers everywhere, everywhere right. in the world. He he does go out and travel even way more than I do. Oh uh, really? <laughs> but the uh, I mean, the work from home. I guess the other thing that we did. I mean, I got to be more involved with the girls. Like I was able to coach. My ten-year-old's basketball team. Mm -hmm. We we did it in No Kid Hungry, or Michael uh, and 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 Ben did their NFT for No Kid Hungry. So right, we, we've right. all sort of come around that organization. We raised a lot of money. That was and that was a good. Our good team thing. raised the most for our basketball league as well. As we got to go play in the Sixers court because our team raised oh, the most money blast. for No Kid Hungry in the, for in the forum. Yeah. Uh, well. Well, what is it called these days? Wells Fargo is the Wells yeah, Fargo. Yeah, Wells Fargo Center. I, to me, it's the Philadelphia Forum, but um, yeah, that's yeah, old yeah. school. Yeah. Um, spectrum, Spectrum. That's right. The Spectrum. Um, so normally, I ask this question right here, which is, 
who are your mentors, but I this is the first time I've actually asked somebody that question with their mentor. <laughs> so I'm going to flip the question on Professor Siegel and say, tell us about some of your mentees and who helped shape your career. Well, clearly, I would mention Professor Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I'd also mention Professor Paul Samuelson from MIT, where I got my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I mean, I regard those as probably the two. I mean, I was honored to be able to be able to be so close to them. I mean, Professor Samuelson was on my thesis committee. Professor Friedman was a colleague of mine. My first four years of teaching was his last four years before he retired. Uh, we became very close friends. I saw him a lot after he retired. He lived in San Francisco whenever my wife and I went there. Uh, they've really made a tremendous difference. That's some combination. And then I always feel like I have to bring this up when I speak with you, is that you and Professor Schiller are yeah. buddies and you guys socialize. And, and let the me families tell you, go out uh, together what's all the amazing time. is tomorrow I'm going to the Poconos and Bob Schiller and his wife Ginny are going to go down there. We used to do that every summer. Mm -hmm. This is the first time in probably... 30 years that we're going to be spending the weekend together. We've, we've been friends for 55 years. It's 55 years? 55 that's a long time. years. I met him as a first year graduate student, 1967 at MIT. Wow. I, I've got a story about their vacation. That's a pretty good one. Go ahead. Let's so, hear it. So, the first year I'm working for the professor is the summer of 01. Uh -huh. And the New York Times was coming to do a profile of the two professors. And it was a great cover david leonhardt i think was yes, the author sure. and i just started dating my now wife bonnie and she had in her class in economics she had to write a contrast irrational exuberance with stocks for the long run <laughs> oh, that's and she hilarious. had to take off to go to a barbecue with them and we uh and the professor like, can i come and uh so anyway she took she got to go to the barbecue with yeah. them in ocean city they were doing it at ocean city we used to rent a place all the time we now own it to shore but uh, you know near ocean city but at that time we rented and he came over spend the weekend and and um, you mentioned my poker playing, but she actually in her paper she got an A plus on the paper. I, I would hope she. Um, I hope there's a photo there's of a, everybody together. There's a, there's a contrast of we actually went to Atlantic City and Bob didn't want to play blackjack and the professor was was playing cards, and she used that as an analogy of the risk. Risk aversion. Oh, come on, Bob. You know, let's 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 play. So even <laughs> even there, there was a good anecdote. Yeah, he's very much. It's just the difference in psychology. He's very much more risk averse. So, but he's so, so it's but funny. We you... love. We 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 have so much in common. We get together. We just talk about so many issues. So uh, when I had Bob here for the show, and he had his next appointment was a speaking event across town. It was the same direction I was heading. So. I'm thinking, well, here's Bob Schiller. I'm not going to stick him in the subway to go downtown. Hey, listen, we'll we'll get a car, and I'll have a car take you to your next event. So we we get in this, you know, uh, cab, and he puts on his seatbelt in the back seat. And I'm like, well, if Bob Schiller is putting yeah. on a seatbelt, maybe he's done the math. Maybe I should be wearing a seatbelt <laughs> yeah. in the back of the car. And uh, He's very cautious. It was, I remember when, I, I love heights, and I remember once there was a bridge and there was a ledge that you could walk on. It was wide enough. 
Right. And, and he said, Jeremy, don't go up there. I said, oh, Bob. And I walked across, and you know, he said, oh, God. You know, he was he was so scared of doing that. He said, "Oh, you might trip, you might fall, you might fall." Uh, That's so, so funny. <laughs> and you guys still spend that much time with each other on a regular basis. Oh, we just love each other. Yeah. Um. All right. So down to my last couple of questions. Let's talk about books. What are you reading now, and what are some of your favorites? This has really dominated so much of what I've done. And recently, and there is one book that I have read recently, and I'm sorry that it's really quite interesting because it has nothing to do with finance. Russ Dothout's book from the Times, from the Times, and he wrote about his journey into a severe Lyme disease situation. Oh, really? And you know, I've had some medical issues myself in the past, and uh, I was fascinated how he dealt with it and how the medical establishment felt with it and he had written several articles about how that affected his feelings about medicine and the government and all the rest the deep uh, places is the that deep it? places you got it that's very interesting yeah and so i it's a fast read he moves to connecticut because it's something he loved all the time and within like two weeks he gets it and no one can cure it and it gets worse and he goes to all these extremes and what he learns and thinks about I thought it was a fascinating book. Huh, really interesting. Uh, and it was, you know, I tried to read a couple things that aren't just economics. No. The, but the, that was, uh, that was, and there was a one other book, but I can't think of that one either. But I, I, I'll say, like, it's, it's sort of a similar story to my podcasting. I used to do more Audible because I got into podcasting. Right. And that was how, I, and so I actually have 12 Audible credits to my point on it. It's been a while since I've been doing a lot. But the last one I read was Hot Commodities from Jim Rogers, which people- I remember when he wrote Investment Biker. Didn't he invite Sure. Yeah, I remember reading that of many, God, 15 years. People were coming back that commodities were coming back for the first time in like 15 years. His book was about 15 years early, but like everything he was talking about is coming together more today. Uh, There's another very interesting, I like history in particular, Uh history about the war. And um, yes, the book was entitled The Newspaper Axis, and it had to do- with both in the United States and in Britain, some of the most major newspapers were big supporters of Adolf Hitler and made excuses for him and and all the rest. Um, And it mentioned some of the biggest editors. Some of it might be people who supported Trump today, but it it wasn't just a right-wing media. These were dominating medias that were very sympathetic it was a pretty shocking book. What, was Actually. this a function of who owned those papers? Yeah, or? I mean, it was the editors of the McCormick of the Chicago Tribune, Beaver Brook, was it the Guardian or the Telegraph in London, who was an admirer of Hitler. Although, once the war started, he really went to the side of the British. The I newspaper was, access, six press barons who enabled Hitler. Yeah. Is the uh, title yeah, on that. that's another one. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in investing in finance? Avoid I, the investment banks. Go find something of your passion. Everybody thinks they got to go to the investment bank. So Just, don't don't start at Goldman or Morgan Stanley. Go it's such to, a routine. I mean, I, I obviously followed a different path. I found the professor. We found more interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly the, the world is getting quant. So Python as like the language do of your choice. Own programming, right. Get into data. Data science is where the financial engineering programs are 
highest in demand people from from my side. You agree? And I w- I would say you know a more general thing. You know, everyone says do what you love. Um, do what you're good at. You know what you're really good. You think better than others. You know. A lot of, oh, yeah, I think about that really well. Pursue your comparative advantage, as an economist would say. In I other like words, that. do what you feel good about, not what someone else, your parents or others are saying. you got to find your own thing. But also know what you're good at. You know, hey, I'm pretty good at that. And that's where you should go. And our final question, what do each of you know about the world of investing that you wish you knew 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Well, I probably would have not had any bonds in my TIA craft <laughs> university account. No bonds at all. Uh, no. You know, had I started out, they always said, oh, Jeremy, you got to be 50 50. Okay, back then, you know, I was. Even 60 uh, 40. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't. You know, when I started, don't forget, I started as an economist. I'd get into gun finance actually later. So, and until I studied myself and I said, what am I doing this for? Um, you know, I started shifting away. But, uh, you know, if you got that long horizon and you're young, and you're young today, you, this is a golden time. I mean, you're not buying at the top, you're buying near the bottom. You are going to be guaranteed great returns when you retire. And in equities, not in bonds. Just not to in clarify. bonds, even with their rates suffer. Just, Just to make sense. So. Jeremy Schwartz, what what do you know today that would have been helpful 25 years ago? The remote first world. If I would have known how remote it was going, it might have moved into different places. There but. you go. That's really interesting. We have been speaking with Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School of Business and Jeremy Schwartz of Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Thank you guys for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out any of our previous 425 conversations we've done over the past eight and a half years. You can find those at Bloomberg.com, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for my daily reading list. That's at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Robert Bragg is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.